This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former England schoolboy Marvin Brown. Bristol City's youngest ever appearance maker discusses his transition from schoolboy into professional football, his experiences of playing professional football, as well as his transition into the coaching world. I hope you enjoy. Good. So, Marv, how are things? Um, good. Um, really good in in general. And life's good. Coaching's good. Uh, more on the course as well, which I did last week. Um, ECAS um, Elite Premier League um, Elite Coach Apprenticeship Scheme. So we're just up in Brecon Beacons for, for three days, walking over mountains and, and doing activity. So, yeah, good fun. Yeah, so I know you mentioned before um, what I knew you were going on that and whatnot. <clears throat> and um, I said to you to save the stories and stuff, yeah. kind of, until we got on here. So... What was it that you actually did? How was it? And all that type of stuff. So, um, this is the last of our two-year course, Premier League um, ECAS course. It's more around um, developing yourself as an individual. Um, so, like, professional skills as well as some theory around coaching. Um, it's not necessarily a coaching course, even though everyone on there is a football coach within a, in an academy. Um, so, this was the last one. A lot of it built up to this. Um, so, it was around... Um, decision making and leadership um, in extreme conditions so the sort of premise of this was which we know now we didn't know before was to make us absolutely shattered the first day physically and then the second day um, have lots of um, different tasks where decision making was more important so it wasn't necessarily physically draining the second day but mentally sort of stressful and draining um, so there are 24 of us there we in groups of eight, um, so we went off in our own. Like I was in the red team. So first day, um, we get there in the afternoon. Um, we get shown different sort of um, army skills that you'll need. So whether it was just how to put up a tent, um, the rations, your food, and actually how to how to cook it and, and make it safe, and, and those types of things. Um, how to um, use a gun? It was actually a paintball gun, but it was. Um, they said it was very realistic to the type of gun that they would use and those types of things. So just your normal army sort of training. Um, they said they try and teach us in three hours what would take them usually a six month block from somebody from the street to actually be able to, to go and um, be called to any country to go and fight. Um, and then at, I think it was around five, six o'clock, we were told um, in our regiment, essentially, in our group, um, we had a call. Um, there was an army. Uh, sorry, a pilot who had been downed. Um, he was safe. Uh, the beacon that he had had been uh, set off, or whatever word you would use. So we had the coordinates, and we had to then come up with a plan uh, with contingencies if things went wrong to go and retrieve him safely. Um, and so they assigned two leaders for us. Um, and then we had to basically come up with a plan. So we did that and we did the most straightforward plan, which was we had a four by four that we could access. It was literally right, work out the coordinates, drive up to where he is, pick him up, come back. Um, we weren't naive enough to think that that would be how it worked, um, but we, we thought we'd keep it really simple and not try to overthink it. So we were the last group to go out and two groups had gone ahead of us. Uh, 
we're in the four by four. We got we've got a um, like a leader who's he was from um, the armed forces. So um, just so we couldn't get lost or anything too bad happened. And we got up to where the coordinates were of the pilot, um, or or a few yards away. And there's a lady um, in front of us, like waving her arms. At this point, we were not aware that this is part of the actual um, assignment we've got. And so our team leader, who was driving, looks out the window and says, "Everything okay?" She said, "Look, my car's just broken down. Do you mind just having a look and coming to help?" He said, "Yeah, no, no problem." At the same time, suddenly out of nowhere, <laughs> completely out of nowhere. Loud bangs on the window. Um, look out, and it's, it's dark at this point. So, so we didn't go out till around nine o'clock, half past nine. So, bangs on the window. Um, lots of swearing, which I won't repeat now. Um, people with these head masks on and stuff, and open a door, and so basically just it was felt like a oh, terrorist hostage taking sort of thing, and it was very realistic. Free you on the side, chuck your bags out. Um, so we're all there on our knees, hands behind our back in a line. Um, at this point, I'm thinking, right, this has got to be now part of, I'm praying this is now part of, part of the course, actually, and this hasn't actually happened. And it was, it was really funny because it was the first part where you sort of saw people's characteristics or, or personalities come out. So two along from me, um, there's a guy, I won't say his name because he'll be embarrassed. But they're saying, right, keep your hands down, don't look at us, don't make any eye contact, make sure you don't look at us. And I see his hands start to go up, so we've been told to keep him behind our head, his hand starts to go up in the air. And I just hear, um, excuse me, can we just talk about this? <laughs> so I'm there trying my hardest not to laugh. And, and um, the guys in not so nice terms were, look, put your hands down or it's going to get blown off um, and he slowly just puts his hand back down and suddenly they take the car and they, they speed off um, so then they uh, quite soon we realised the pilot wasn't there anymore um, and so it was basically get back to base so we've been driving for 40 minutes um, so we had to so our um, leader spoke to us about right what's the plan how are we going to get back um so we it was we can go back on the road but that's going to take us hours and hours and hours um because we also went around the houses to get to where we were or it was walk in a straight line along the map um but essentially that was over a mountain um brecon beacon so we advised to go that way and, and we did and we ended up walking for uh, five hours um through the night got back at half past two um i've really skipped over a bit of walking on really really narrow ledges at the top of a mountain with it snowing um you had a lady in our group who was struggling to get up the the mountain so we were taking it in turns with her bag to make sure she got across and had lots of different checkpoints looking things so said you got back at half two and then at half past five i'm sorry i went to sleep at half two at half five loud bang um they come running in, right, we'll be in attack, we'll be in attack, everybody up, pack your bags, get... She's like, right, three hours sleep after a five hour walk. Um, we all went into into some room and they said, right, the first part of your test is, is done. You've now got 45 minutes to go back, clean up, but I said there were no showers or anything like that. So it was basically just put on some new clothes and a, another set of overalls, have some breakfast, um, cook it, have your breakfast, and, and so on, and move on to the next 
the next task. Um, so at this point, everyone's shattered, um, as you can imagine. Um, and then throughout the day, we had um, a series of different tasks where each of us took either what they call commander or second in command. So the first task um, was to protect the uh, villagers around the base where we were. So, um, so we had come under attack, we had to make sure we protected the, the villagers. So <clears throat> we were asked to go down to a market, um, a marketplace where there was a suspicious package. So halfway down, it wasn't too far, maybe 200 yards away. We're walking down a path, maybe we've gone 100, 150 yards, we hear a really loud bang again and a big puff of smoke. So we go running down. The leader takes a lead, he asked me to stay back and make sure no one else can come in um, to where we were. And then a few minutes later, because I couldn't see anything at this point, because my role was just to protect the, the, the gateway. Um, but there was a, a lady down there, um, obviously it was role play, her arm had been blown off. Um, and then the day before we had done some first aid, so it was around um, actually how we managed her, how did we get her back up to the ambulance, call the ambulance, all those sort of things. So again, this was the first one. So we just had three hours sleep, just had, some of us had breakfast, some of us just had peanuts and things like that because we didn't have time to every, for everybody to cook all of their food. So um, so we had to, yeah, deal with that, get the lady in the ambulance and you could see some real mistakes that you probably wouldn't have made the day before. So for example, I walked back down then after she had gone in the ambulance and was like, guys, have you realized her arm's still in a puddle <laughs> so it was, it was a plastic oh it was like oh i'm assuming we should have probably brought that up with her they may have been able to save it or something like that but just with your mind's racing and no and no sleep sort of those types of um those types of mistakes happened sort of throughout the day walked down further we realized a pilot had been taken hostage was the other side of a river we need to needed to negotiate with um the uh militia um to get him back so we had, um, on our side of the river, there were these chemicals that could clean water. He didn't have any water, so it was right, if we get these across to you, you give us back the pilot. And it was um, around certain chemicals couldn't go together, so we had to get one across the river and then back and swap them over. And again, a screaming lady who's shouting at the um, militia leader as we're trying to negotiate and all of those types of things. So um, really, really good, good experience. It went from that to and the next one was oh we had to go and kill a terrorist um so we had to do an ambush um and so that all got planned and then we got it was all paintballs and we had to go up and, and um work as a team um to get out there stealthily and then wait for him to do a particular thing which was touch a bin which had um lots of documents in as soon as he touched it then we could fire and they returned fire and things like that which was next um my one was next, so I was the um, second in command for the control room, the operations room, um, which is a brilliant task. I loved it. It's my favourite task of the whole thing. Everybody else on the whole course hated it, which is interesting. Um, essentially, we were in a room. We had different people. So someone was in charge of logistics. Somebody was in charge of security um, and, and so on. And um, different things would come up on a screen. Um, and they would say, for example, there's been um, an earthquake and because of that there's landslides at the same time there's been um, an attack here. So how are we going to get the, um, the ambulance to the people who have been hurt as well as 
and making sure they don't go down the landslide route and it was mapped and just trying to sort all that out and going back and forth to everybody. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. It felt like a bit of a computer game, essentially. Um, and then the last one we had was... Um, the scenario was there was a, a bomb in a room that we couldn't go in. It was too dangerous to send um, any of us in, so we had to move robots around um, and pick up the bomb and put it in a particular area where then it could be disposed of and, and so on. Um, and that was the final one of, of the day. Between each one, um, we had to give feedback to whoever was leading um, out of us, our other coaches. And it was a really good exercise just around the leader had to say what they wanted to work on and then we had to give specific feedback to that um, rather than general feedback and you also couldn't repeat what anybody else has said so if you're at the end of the line you really had to think about what you could offer and if the answer was I can't offer anything else then it was it was that which I found really good and something I'm considering and another thing from this course really that I'll bring back and try to implement in some way with regards to to giving feedback um and then on the last day which was friday um with sort of fresh minds we had we were allowed to sleep in a bed uh, on, on, on thursday night and we had a, a nice meal on, on thursday evening friday was just really just a wrap up and a load of feedback um we're going to actually get feedback from our um lead our main leader um around how we uh, how we led um, and how we um, how well we completed um, our own individual challenges so we had to set three challenges so mine for example I'm no good in the cold so I feel the cold I always want the heating on everyone else in the office is wanting to open windows and, and things so mine was to be able to still motivate myself and others in cold conditions um, it was what's my second one my second one was um, offering logical, um, what was it? Logical, strategic um, plans again within in extreme conditions and, and so on. And I had and I had one more. So we'll get feedback from um, basically the company Fieri, who are the army people, who will give us that feedback. And then we've got an assignment, um, fifteen hundred word assignment on how we felt like we did and what we'll use in the future and how we prepared for it and those type of things so so yeah a long-winded way but it was brilliant brilliant experience is there anything from like a personal perspective that surprised yourself or either in a positive or negative way for me um not necessarily surprised but i really wanted to my main thing was i'm quite a chilled personality um i don't really get flustered by things I think my I've got a, I try to put everything into perspective so when things seem to be going falling down around me I can kind of bring myself back to and find positives in everything and I thought actually this will be a really good um, opportunity for me to see actually could you do this under lots of pressure so it wasn't the same type of pressure but I was thinking potentially in a first team environment and when you know you need to win the next couple of games to keep your job or that type of pressure but in this scenario it was more um it was going to be whatever the extreme thing was and had to make clear decisions um my feedback from the group was i was probably the one in the group that kept everybody else going and stayed the most sort of level it wasn't too high or too low at any point and that 
just probably confirmed to me that I can and could do it in in an extreme environment, um, which really pleased me because I, I didn't know, and you suppose you don't know until you know. Um, and so that was probably the one thing I took away was actually, yeah, in in extremes you can remain calm and you can be that um, level head um, when when things become difficult. I guess it's interesting as well. Obviously, you're working in a group. I imagine you know most of the people in there, but not mm-hmm. as in well enough to go and have a pint with or something like that mm-hmm. all the times yeah so you're probably seeing a group dynamic of people's personalities being really accentuated and like you said for a first team environment that probably mm-hmm. shows you that actually from the outside looking in you just see as a bunch of first team players they must all get along they must be quite similar mm-hmm. there's probably great differences in their makeup and how you'd manage them as groups yeah um i think for me it's two things really it, it's self-awareness and empathy, I think, in, in any team in that environment. I think like they, they are two really, really important things. So knowing yourself and knowing um, how you might react to, to certain things and why will will help you either not get to that breaking point um, by stepping away before or having a conversation with someone and asking for help and, uh, and so on. And then just empathy for everybody else and not thinking... Again, it's the same in a, in a team in like a football environment, but in this scenario, it was saw people flagging. So without that empathy, I think it would be easy to say, why are they not working as hard as I am? And actually, there were there was no task where everybody excelled, um, or sorry, there was no task where any individual excelled in all of them and needed more support or needed to take a back step and push someone else forward. I think that's the same as, as, as any team. Um, without that, without self-awareness, knowing yourself, I don't think... Um, you can then necessarily ask for that support or know when it's going to be needed, um, sort of preempt it. And the other way, without the the empathy, I think it it's it can become almost a selfish environment. And I'm going to do the bits I like and not do the bits I don't, or take ownership for everything and get a blame culture and those and those things. So for me, I think we agreed beforehand as well that self awareness and empathy would be really really important. Is that something you've always had, or is that something you've as you've got older you've got better with? Um. On this course, the first um, it was the first or second residential. So we have six a year, and like usually three year residential. On the first one, we had to do emotional intelligence tests, um, and on that, the foot, the first one, um, it kind of I feel like is so. The short answer to that is I think I've always had a lot of empathy, um, not necessarily self awareness. Um, and that came, I scored really highly on that within my emotional intelligence, but I didn't, never really had a word for it. Um, and everything on that was not that assertive in general. So when they, when we did the test and they, you get um, a sentence or a paragraph underneath each one to explain what it means. And I was reading it and I was like, this is just me in a, in a nutshell. It was really accurate in my opinion. Um, and the empathy one wasn't something I'd really thought about as a word, but I just knew if you had a trialist come to the club, you might know what it's like. Usually, they're taking a mick out of and football is sometimes a real horrible environment. So if you're talking about as a scholar and things and a trialist come doesn't know anyone, I always gravitated towards them and I always felt bad and I'd always try and help them through the process. Um, footballers know that anyone comes in, if they're in your position, right, that it's essentially a threat um it's this person's gonna come and now i've got less chance of, of playing um but i never saw it that way i would just try to help 
any trialist or anyone who looked like they were in a vulnerable position. Didn't know why, didn't know what it was growing up. And it's probably only, said, 18 months ago when I had my first residential. And I was like, I could just remember, like on reflection, I could think of times in the past when I showed that characteristic without knowing why. I just felt bad for him and wanted to help him, essentially. So looking back, I can see that I've had that for a long time. But it's only recently I've really been able to say, yeah, and probably because enough, I haven't really thought about it before. We were forced to, and with the um, EI test school score, sorry, EQ test, we, um, yeah, for me, it just sort of made me have a word that I could put to to the to the feeling. It's interesting because it kind of, like you said, almost goes against the grain of what football is known as. It's known as quite a ruthless and quite a. Mm-hmm. Um, full-on thing like you said where players will get onto people come in their position they identify they're a threat so like get yeah. rid of the, the young ones it's quite interesting that kind of going against the grain with that when you were a scholar and stuff did you get any comeback off the back of acting like that or was it um, yeah I think so at times I think um, it was seen as quite a a soft characteristic essentially um, now don't get me wrong I had I was involved in a banner as much as the next one, but I just think I would probably know when to, to stop and and that sort of social awareness of being able to read that someone's actually quite uncomfortable in this scenario and, and just things like that. So I don't really feel like I got, not, not to any extreme, but I think it was noticed by others that I was a little bit different in those, in those scenarios. Um, but yeah, I was probably looking back or in the in in the crowd, so it was you just kind of got away with it, not out of anything other than being a good footballer who always played up and stuff. So I think people just like you because yeah. of it, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, is that identity of being one of the better, yeah, one of the better ones so. in the group, which will help. I guess obviously some people listening to this might not know kind of your your background in terms of where you played and how successful you were with that. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk us through kind of, obviously you're growing up in terms of football, <coughs> other sports, have you played other sports, and then kind of how you transitioned into the way you ended up? Okay, um, so uh, my older brother, Aaron Brown, three years older than me, um, he joined Bristol City, I think when he was eight, so I say joined, it was a centre of excellence then. Um, and so, I think I joined when I was eight, so I think he must have been under 11s and I was having a kickabout on the side of training with my dad and someone thought, oh, he looks, he looks all right and we'll try and see if he can join in. That's sort of how it worked back then. <laughs> um, I'm 36 now, so yeah, it's, it's a long time ago. Um, and I um, joined in and sort of that was it then. I was part of the academy or the equivalent back then, um, from eight years old, um, always did well, was just probably what you would call a natural, as in um, didn't really struggle at many points through my schoolboy years. I was fortunate enough uh, under 15s to represent England, so I played for England schoolboys, um, played, ended up playing, I think it was 22 games between under 15s and under 18s. Um, also fortunate enough to play, um, make my first team debut at 16, um, and it's still, I think it's still the youngest ever for Bristol City, um, 
and from then I think um, I started to probably 7, 16, 17 I started to have my first real um, challenges um, didn't you know I played up an age group two age groups throughout and yes I have you know bad games and so on but I never really felt challenged properly until I was sort of 17 and um, and that was a mixture of something we spoke about before so um, probably first recognized it when I had Tony Pulis gave me my debut when I was 16 and his information to me was I've seen what you've done in the youth team I've seen what you've done in the reserves go and play the free flowing um, off the cuff flair type game that you play um, and if I need you to do something different at any point I'll let you know and and for me that was that was amazing my brother was in the first team as well so going up and, and playing with him was brilliant for the family and so on so that was that was amazing um, and then Tony Pulis left um, at the end of that season and Danny Wilson came in and he was very very different um, and it was very um, prescriptive as in how he wanted me to, to play as a forward or as a winger um, and it was very much when X gets the ball I want you to be here and when you get it I want you to pass to him and then I want you to make this run and um, didn't never really he didn't really take to me but accountability wise I didn't really do what he asked I, I continued to play with flair and if I saw something different I would do it or I would try it uh, whether it came off or not it wasn't the team plans and I was a coach I can see why that might be frustrating for a manager at the time I was like well hold on I've just played a free ball and move in or we've I've assisted or, or whatever but he, he um, I think my style of play my natural style of play didn't match with how he wanted us to play as a team and so um, didn't play that many games um, or when I did it was five minutes here and ten minutes there at the end of the game if we needed a, a goal or something like that just throw on an attacker and then um, at 19 I went second half of the season um, Bobby Gould was a manager at Cheltenham Town and I went to uh, Cheltenham in January from then to the end of the season and probably had my best within a professional career because I got released at 21 so played quite a few games between then and the end of the season and he was very much like Tony Pulis like I've seen what you've done and what you can do um, things like when I first got it, I said, you're going to play the first five games, no matter how well or bad you play. I believe in you, you're going to play. And for me, um, just someone having that confidence in you, just instilled it in myself then. It just it just came out and I feel like I did well. Um, played quite a few games that season, mostly as a winger. Um, and then Cheltenham wanted to take me on a free at the end of the season, but I had one year left at Bristol City. And um, they the club decided that they wanted to to keep me for that final year um, I think I only ended up playing maybe one game in that, in that final year and in that time Bobby Gould had um, lost his role at Cheltenham um, and like it is in football it's, it's circumstance yeah it's just circumstance and, and so I got released at the end of that season um, looking back I think I don't like using the word but I think there may have been some type of depression for a few months or or similar um again it's a long time ago and this is probably on reflection um but didn't really want to do anything really leave my room or do whatever again i'd been at Bristol City from eight um 
came as a little bit of a surprise when I got released as well. Um, just just because they didn't allow me to leave on a free the year before, I thought, okay, they must want me or want to give me more time or whatever. So it did come as a little bit of a surprise, which looking back, maybe it should have. I didn't play many games that last year. Um, and then did the... Sorry, um, end of... So I got released in the summer to Christmas. I didn't do too much. Um, and my friend... Um, Kevin Amanko had joined the Oval Town and it was Gary Johnson, Lee Johnson's father, who was the manager there, asked me to come along, I did a trial, I did quite well, um, then he signed me till the end of the season um, and again played a couple of games, not, not loads, I went there really unfit so it was the first couple of months was really trying to get up to, to full speed and then I had a decision at the end of that season whether to go back there and fight for a place or um, fight for a contract I should say or at the time, um, I was offered something by Forest Green, who were going full-time, and um, decided to go and try and pursue something with, with Forest Green, and that didn't sort of work out in the end. Um, so I went and did a non-league circuit. Um, at the same time, I started coaching, so Tony Pulis, one of the um, coaches, I can't remember that exact role then, at, um, Bristol City had asked me to get involved in the academy and I was adamant as soon as I got released and I was like no, I don't want to be a, a coach it's nothing because I've never really thought of it I was going to be a footballer and that was it I was you know why would I want to go and, and coach and when I went into the non-league circuit I joined uh, Western Supermare and I was there for a few years and started coaching um, in the academy um, trying to get a feel for it didn't get paid or anything like that um, even though I'd played for the first thing would come out it was almost just earning, earning your stripes and getting that that experience and I was happy to do that at that point. Um, did a bit of gym instructing as well while I was um, at uh, Western Supermare and then had a couple of good seasons um, and then Salisbury City um, were towards the top of the um, Conference South um, and they bought me from, from Western so joined Salisbury, got promoted into the Conference um, had a year in a conference during this sort of time I had started my own um, coaching company um, called Toto Pro Soccer with two other coaches um, Trevor Chalice who's now the under 18s manager at Bristol City and Dave McGibbon who was um, he still is a teacher now but he's a coach at Bristol City as well um, and so the three of us started a company um, a couple of years in because uh, at the time Trevor Chalice was head of youth recruitment I think and then he got a full time coaching role so he couldn't commit to the company anymore when Dave got in full-time teaching. He couldn't, so I just took it on myself. Um, that's still still going now and going well. Um, but yeah, I um, joined Salisbury. Had a good few years there, really good fun. Um, it was I found it difficult because it was trying to think, right, I'm, what, maybe 26 now. Um, do I want to still pursue a football career? And the coaching seems to be taken off and I seem to be doing well and enjoying it more and more and more. Do I want to get on that route? And eventually um, I stopped focusing so much on the playing and more and more on the coaching. I think I was 28 then when I officially like, retired um, to a point and, and just, just stopped playing and really focused on like my weekends were taken up with, with coaching and, and things like that. So um, that was really my my story until I started started coaching. I was then at Bristol City. I did what four years at Bristol City. Started my own company. 
did eight to ten years with Total Pro Soccer. Um, at that time, after I stopped playing, I was a PE instructor at a special education needs school, which was brilliant. Loved it, and it's helped my coaching so much with regards to understanding the environment, understanding how the learning environment can um, affect learning or performance, um, and just that understanding of of people. So it's it's I find it quite funny now. You have someone who's not listening to every word as a coach and some coaches get really frustrated I'm like just go and do two days in SEN school if you know and, and, and it's just, again it's that perspective and understanding on where's your tolerance level and do you understand um, and I'm no expert but I think just experiencing working and really like I said that is an extreme and never extreme environment trying to work with children with SEN um, special education needs and some you know you might have one person who's got um, on their file you have to shout their name or they won't hear you or they won't respond um, because they'll be miles away think about something else if you don't shout their name you won't get a response from them and then you've got someone in the same class anything loud and they'll run and you're like right okay <laughs> how do <laughs> there's differentiation and there's this yeah. it's really how do you manage this so um i yeah went into um i was a p instructor for three three years at the same time I was um, running my company and then um, made the decision as the company was growing to I had to step away from that and really focus on on growing it and we a lot of opportunities came our way um, within schools and within development centres and um, college program um, the St Brendan's College we run there under post 16 academy essentially um, and then two years ago um, Dave Horsley was a good friend who's um, Southampton 23's coach now um, he was in my group coming through at Bristol City um, he went into coaching really early and gone off to Watford and so on and he had come, recently come back as head of coaching at Bristol City I was having a conversation with him and he said he'd really like me to come and do some stuff with the strikers just the under 18 so I was doing a couple of days a week just with the um, under 18's in a day um, and then Following from that in early, so we're coming to, yeah, two years ago now, um, the ECAS course um, came about again. The applications um, were up, and he said, Look, it's something that we'd that he would like me to consider um, as part of going on the course. I had to be full time within a club, um, and so Bristol City gave me their support uh, through the application process, and they got in and sort of coming off to coming to the back end of it now, so yeah. So we'll go through some of that because obviously it's quite thorough in terms mm-hmm. of that. I've done SEN stuff as well, mm-hmm. and similar to you, for me, it's one of the probably one of the best experiences in terms of understanding groups, mm-hmm. understanding levels of groups, and pitching accordingly, and all that type of stuff. Obviously, you gave a good example there. What other stuff did you learn, kind of being in that teaching environment, that SEN environment, all that type of stuff? Um, Maybe like planning, having real detailed plans. I was never a brilliant planner, and to be honest, that's I'm, I'm not now. Um, I'm, I'm still not, but I've got a better understanding of um, in certain circumstances why they are vital. Um, like in in an SEN environment, um, these were all mental disabilities rather than physical. So none of them they, they were all physically able, um, but. 
for me it was like patience tolerance levels um the other things you have to, to deal with to an extreme children spitting or kicking or fighting and to with you um and obviously selflessness um knowing that look as much as they're hurling abuse at you they don't want to necessarily be doing that that's that's part of their condition um and and for me it's it was probably more than anything else it again was probably that that empathy for these kids who you can see a behavior and you can as a coach or a teacher just respond to the behavior but if you understand what that child's had to go through you're like the fact that he's coming to school is an absolute miracle the fact that he's strong enough to be in a social environment when some of the things he's had to go through that either his parents or other scenarios um just from their files once you read the files and why they're actually there at that school you just think jesus it's you know you've got a lot of sympathy and empathy for him and i think that then in relation to coaching again you can have a player who straight away is just being told over and over again he's got a bad attitude or or and you you just don't know what they've what they've gone through and for me my sort of initial take on all that all the time is i just don't imagine somebody wants to have a bad attitude there's usually a reason behind it um and whether it's something inter internally or externally or even think out of as a coach says is it something that i'm doing essentially and or something that i can help with and because of that i think that that's really really helped me with um building relationships with players and understanding um behavior probably negative behavior as well too. so obviously in your role now you'll kind of get new groups come through year on year mm -hmm. is there anything you do in particular to try and get to know the kids or get to know their circumstances or backgrounds or anything like that yeah so um, before in the first half of the year I would say before every session I'll pick somebody to um, speak to just walking out to the to the pitch um, and how the school how's family life how's just to get to know them um, and usually someone the other way so I try and pick two a session uh, one before one after um, and I try not to make it too obvious it's just I'll almost speed up and end up next to somebody and and just see how how they are in in general um i think taking an interest in somebody away from just how they performed on the pitch i think will gain that trust um and then i think once you've got that trust hopefully they'll open up to you if there are concerns and and two you'll like i said you'll get a better understanding of um you know are both parents at home or you got siblings what are the other pressures that you've you've got are you how you getting on at school and um how are you socially in the group and the changing room and, and those types of things so for me that's something that i each year i do and have made um conscious decision to do and i think that's really helped me get to know them and also at times i'll do the same if there's something that actually correlates to my life oh actually I, that's similar to me oh, i've got two brothers and and just so that we get a buy-in a little bit and so I'm going to think I'm the only one that does, but on the first review, um, so after six weeks, the first six week review, I'll ask the players to not necessarily review me, but give me something that they would potentially like me to change or something that they don't particularly like. 
Um, and it's like I said, for me, there's no negative in that. It can be the the worst thing as a coach that you'd want to hear. Like one person for me said, um, "Sorry, one person said to me, I feel like you don't praise me enough." And it was like that was like a dagger through my heart. I was just like, "Oh my gosh, oh, I hurt so much." Um, and another, we had two boys who were coming on trial, and they said, "When you don't use your board." The tactics board it takes us like 10 minutes to understand they just come from grassroots they're on the 15s they've not been in the academy so i'm talking to the boys who would come up through it and say all right draw side of the diamond you get to the top of the diamond um if his first touch isn't one that he can play forward you come out of that space and you go and, and all the other boys knew what i was talking about they'd done pre-season they had and so it was almost like oh don't need the board anymore they get it these two new trialists come in and it was for me it was i didn't take enough um care to make sure that they understood so potentially by not asking that question they may not have said or felt comfortable enough to say actually we don't get it because they had gone potentially six weeks struggling um yeah and and actually it was one of my points was like they just don't they don't become information very quickly and it's so easy to put it on on the player or the child um so that's something that they're probably the two main things that i um do early on to it's quite a powerful way of having the kids give you feedback um, in terms of, yeah, getting that. Because like you said, you wouldn't have thought of that. And uh, there's probably coaches all over the country going, don't take on information, don't listen properly. Yeah. Where actually it's just, we're new, we don't understand. Or but the younger age groups, mm-hmm. like, get half the sentence you're saying, but then the other half, I'm kind of like, I don't understand what accountability means, or I don't understand what yeah. that rotation is, you need to show me again. So mm-hmm. yeah, that is obviously a real, real, real powerful way of getting getting ownership for them. Does that, do you think that helps your coaching environment in terms of then further on in the year asking you questions, maybe out on the pitch or on the way in? Definitely, I would hope so. And that's what it's designed for, um, doing it at the reviews as well, rather than one-to-one, is that the parents are there, so they've got the comfort of actually a parent. And at times, parent will say, oh, remember when you said this after this training session and all this life particularly good or you didn't quite get this and... Um, one boy has moved position um, uh, for uh, for a lack of athleticism before actually playing a different role might help him down the line um, and we kind of made the decision um, for him and always told I feel at that point we told him rather than got a buy-in now I think a lot of time you can get players from guided discovery to come on board with what you want but if they feel part of it then I think that it's it's a lot easier so just just small things like that and that and actually on an assignment um, as part of the ECAS we have to do a poster on something that we um, feel will benefit us and our academies excuse me <coughs> so I'm basing mine on um, high performance environments so there's a particular high performance environment model that I'm using comparing it to the um, coaches at Bristol City and the environments that we um, create and uh, some of this information is in is in that and some of the feedback so it's questionnaires with the players asking them some real tough questions as simple as do you trust your coach um, and different lots of different areas there's 33 questions that cover um, three different um, sections and then off of that as coaches we do the same thing but in reverse so do we do this do we do this and it's sort of yes no unsure sometimes 
and it's really interesting to see what some of the coaches say or think that they do and actually what the players overall how they receive that and if they feel like it happens or, or not and one of the big things for us as a club um, or at least the coaches that we spoke to where I thought we really fell down was the um, the areas for development we had given the players rather than them having any ownership within it I don't think it had a major impact because there was another question on do you agree with them and I don't know at least 90% said yes I think it was only 60% or even less than that. Mine was definitely less, maybe 30, 40% felt like they had or they were involved in their areas for development. And I think that that's, for me, that has to change. That's going to be one of the biggest things from this assignment that I'm going to change. I can't just tell the boys, this is what you need to work on. It has to be, um, or it should be at least a buy-in from them um, and, and or a discussion on why you feel that way it shouldn't necessarily just be a review right this is now what we need to work on in my opinion um and it's not as cold as that they do have reviews to um we use huddle so we've got a lot of clips and things to back up what we're saying but at the same time i think it's important that uh, the players are have some type of say on the things that they work on it's interesting obviously earlier on you mentioned about the self-awareness that you have in terms of you got older that's probably giving them a good starting point if you're making them critique their own performance and then go I need to work on this they're then getting a self-awareness of things they're good at things they're not good at which yeah. is a lot of a start uh, earlier starting point than obviously you would have yeah definitely I think especially players who play um, in similar positions I find that I'm sure I'm sure you would have you would have you'll potentially praise somebody for doing something and so a centre midfielder um, for a good look diagonal pass and put somebody in or something like that and then you'll notice that the other centre midfielder who maybe hasn't he's not got that technique to play that pass he's a completely different type of player he'll be looking to do it potentially seeking that praise and it's and that's probably that is another thing I do speak to the boys about really early on is look you're all here because you're good players for one but you've got different attributes do you know what your super strength is um, do you know what you think are your areas for development and at some at some point when they're younger this is an opinion you work on all of those weaknesses um, as well as their strengths and once you get older you'll learn to hide those weaknesses rather than necessarily improving them um, so I don't know I use John Terry for example he was never a quick player um, he's always slow and but his reading of the game was so good, he wouldn't get too tight because if he got spot, he'd never get back in. So he'd always leave that gap. And then as a forward move, he would then get tight and use his strength. So it's it's having that understanding of trying to improve their weaknesses. And then, like I said, as they get older and it becomes more about the performance um, rather than the, the learning, necessarily all the process, um, it's can you teach them the, the guile and the... the um, strategies within the game to uh, minimise the weaknesses or, or just hide them. So is there an age where you think development <coughs> for players plateaus off in terms of technical? I guess is the main one where there's a bit of discussion around how old can you keep learning techniques or to what age does it plateau a little bit? Is there an area you think or an age roughly that you think that maybe plateaus off? Um... <sighs> I'm not, and I'll be honest, I'm not 
I wouldn't consider myself an academic. I wouldn't consider myself to know all the um, theory around um, how children learn and, and, and those types of things. But well, I would say in, in general, so I couldn't say an, an age. I know I've been on courses where they say actually up to 12 is where, you know, um, is the best opportunity or up to 12 is the best opportunity for them to take on that information and those motor skills and improve them and, and so on. Um, but that would be me just copying something I've heard, you know, essentially. Um, and so for me, I think the tactical side of it is much more important at the older end, at the older end. If you have to still focus on a lot of the, almost the basic techniques, whether they're ball mastery skills or whether they're passing and receiving skills or, or ball striking, if you still have to focus on that when, for example, they get to my current age group under 15s, I feel like one, that might limit your your tactics. If we're going to play through the thirds all the time, but actually our centre midfielders can't receive on a half turn or they can't um, receive under pressure or they don't know how to... Um, they can't play those switch switch balls and, and those types of things. I think it actually it just limits what you can do. Um, so I think as a preference, I would be heavily technical based at the younger age groups. Um, and I know we had this discussion just before we started, but around that internal and external focus of attention. So when they're um, young, a lot of time I think they told this is a skill I want you to try and this is how you want you to practice it and this is what it will look like and maybe feel like um, and then as they get older they need to be able to switch between between the two so they need to be able to follow instructions like I said I didn't do very well I didn't do it very well with Danny Wilson I was told be here at this time pass the ball here and then move here I wasn't very good at that what I thought my strength was was being able to assess the environment and the um, situation in front of me and um, make a decision and execute that decision to the best of my ability to help the team and myself so it's a bit of a long-winded way to say I can't give you an exact time frame but what I would say is I personally think the younger you start with those basic techniques means that at the older age you're being able to execute decisions whether it's tactically or not you're able to execute decisions without thinking about the mechanic of the skill and I have been looking at some research recently around actually thinking about the mechanics of a skill while making a decision may affect the decision um, or may affect the execution of that decision, if that makes sense. So if I can hit a drill pass over 50 yards uh, over and over and over and over again um, in a technique setting, so I don't necessarily have to think about the mechanics of that skill when I make the decision to do it, I'm just focusing on the run of the player and I know my technique will get there anyway. If I'm having to think about my technique doing it, it might be so my um, perception goes or my decision-making goes or, or something along those lines. So. so obviously you mentioned before you were quite young when you went into Bristol City. Mm -hmm. um, what was your process in terms of skill development um, at those younger age groups was it just at Bristol City was it a local club as well was it schools how did that so we play um, so back then it was it was different you could play in an academy or centre of excellence right up until I think it was under 14s and after under 14s you had to stop so um, our school we didn't play many school games um, we didn't really have a, a school team but I played um, 
for grassroots teams sometimes two so probably up until 14 most weekends I played at least two games sometimes three so sometimes I play Saturday morning for Bristol City then I'd get in the car go and play for Sherampton for example and then get in the car and play on a Sunday for even Athletic or, or along those lines so played lots of football in different um in different environments I didn't play many other sports so it wasn't you know I wasn't playing rugby and, and, and anything else really it was it was just football um and for me it's a funny one because I hear lots of people say like to be able to excel you need to sort of love what you do and actually that could be an argument why I didn't necessarily go any further than I did but I liked football I knew I was very good at it and that was what kept me going probably but I didn't I didn't love it. I didn't love. I love football now as a coach. Like yeah. now, I do. Mm. But as a player, I, it was. It felt to me like anything else that you're good at, and so you just keep doing. And that was. And so I find it interesting now when I hear, you have to, to love it to, to be able to um, excel or make the next step or make it whatever whatever that means to to you. Um, I do disagree with that. I don't necessarily think you. You do. I think it seems like any industry, if you're good at something and you work hard enough at it, you can still succeed. And it's maybe when the things go wrong, are you going to keep doing it if you don't necessarily enjoy it? I think there has to be some type of enjoyment, but I don't think it has to be as far as you have to really, really love it. Did you have other like other stuff in and around football that you really enjoyed? Other hobbies or anything like that? Not particularly. I really don't. I think it's just so I realised like people would. Other people in the team would talk about all these results on the weekend and they'd be able to tell you who won the FA Cup in this year and, and you know, 20 years before like we were born and, and things like that. And this happened on match of the day. And, this, and I was, and most, I would watch football if it was on. I just, I, it just wasn't, it was for me, it was another thing that I did that I enjoyed. But I think a lot of that enjoyment came off the back of keep getting told you're good at this every you keep getting mad at the match you keep coming home with a trophy and I think that was what my motivation was at a lot of time. it wasn't it just wasn't that I loved the, the sport which I'm now sort of trying to maybe work out what did that mean and maybe overthinking it but and it's only fairly recently I on reflection realised that but I definitely wasn't mad about football. So, so you mentioned you're like a flair player mm-hmm. at the time. Were you like flair as in creative passing, finishing, or was it dribbling, or what type? How did that manifest itself? Um, so I was fairly big, like physically big, um, and I was always being quick. Um, but I always wanted to try something different. Um, I always. Um, so I had a when I was young I had a finish that was like my finish which was just an outside of the big finish across the keeper almost within your stride so limited back lift got no idea where I got it from I just knew I can just remember picturing it now in like seven side tournaments that would be my my go to finish and it used to impress people they used to like it but I always used to work out ways of so even really young like no touch turns I can remember thinking I think I was just a thinker so I think this ball's coming into me if I don't touch this and he misses it it's a straight foot race and I'm always going to get there first so I think I just really would think about different ways of um, 
getting the outcome I was looking for, uh, whether it was a finish. So I was always a good finisher, but I think that was more through um, creativity and practicing different things, whether it was a chip or I remember like Romario, see him do a toe plan, like, oh, right, and I never perfected it, could never get it right. But I'd always think about actually my coach is saying, this is the standard thing to do, but I think I can come up with something better. I think I can do something different. But I think that was me. That wasn't just in football. That was me naturally. Um, I was quite a creative thinker. I think in school, try and work out different ways to do stuff. Bending the rules. So in games, if the coach wasn't really specific on a rule, I would work out what bit was it. So yeah, I would always find the, the loophole to, to to work it out. So I think that was a natural thing. That wasn't like I said, it wasn't planned, but. So it was, I couldn't do sort of all the skills in the, in the world that actually some of the kids do now, but it was, it was just a, like a, it's hard to explain. Um, like I was trying being, to think like back. Different, yeah. Like, like being different yeah. to the norm almost. Yeah, it was that. And did you play against, did you say one older brother or two? Uh, one older brother and I've got a younger brother. So did you play against them a lot? In, like at home and stuff would you play a lot of football in the street with um, those two or not not really my younger brother's 10 years younger so that was, yeah. that was um, to your older brother's three years Scoring older goals, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but not particularly like I said we had quite a small garden actually we smash a basketball at the window and don't know how it stayed there <laughs> but it did and the mum would go mad and, and so we would but not necessarily in a in a com- really competitive um, way. Um, like I said, our garden was probably too small. And it was like it wasn't grass or anything like that, so we couldn't do too much. What I would say is my dad was always really supportive, and <laughs> he would um, take us over to St George's Park in Bristol. And they had like a little court in there, and I remember times when there'd be like men playing over there, and he'd be like, "Oh." Do you want to play against these two? Like, have a 2v2 with, like, some grown men. And they'd be like, okay. <laughs> and then we'd go and just, like, rip them apart. And they'd be like, what's going on? What's going on here? So, yeah, that was quite, um, that was quite funny. And so that's quite a good way. We talk about creativity there. Mm-hmm. If you know in, that if you just do the norm against a man, more likely than not, they're going to be able to step across or run you and stuff. So those are probably times where you're going to need that creativity uh, yeah, in a situation like that to do something different because if you do what's expected, yeah, more likely than not you're gonna yeah always get found definitely. Back, like. And even if I could, so like I, said, I could kick like if I wanted to for a lot of years, I could kick him right and score loads of goals. Yeah. I just didn't necessarily get the same satisfaction as doing something slightly different. And I think that was where I got my challenge almost. And did you practice in your practice of finishing a lot, or is that again something that just came um, more natural? Not away from. Um, the centre of excellence or away from school and, and things like that but what when we did or if we had finishing sort of topics or where it was I would that would sort of get me going and I would then have a real good opportunity and again we always played a game so like I said in my own age group a lot of it physically because I was physically dominant at a young age um, I'm not now I stopped growing up 14 and, and that was it become a small player um but it was it was just something that I would always I would always try. Even if it didn't come off, I I'd keep trying and trying and trying. Something like it's slightly different. Anytime I had an opportunity to, 
Um, but at home we didn't. Like I said, we played in the garden, but that was just smashing the ball as hard as we could, really. So then, obviously, you mentioned kind of you've gone through that age, doing really well, kind of not really too much of a rocky road approach, if you like, mm-hmm. um, resting. Then you got your chance within the first team. Can you just explain to us kind of how that came about, how you found out, how you felt kind of walking onto the pitch with that type of stuff? Um, I had played, so 60, it was 16 to 71 days, I remember it really, really well. Um, I think it was 25th of September. So if you think, just become a scholar. Um, so literally been in school till that July or whatever. Um, started pre-season. I think I played two reserve games in pre-season. I think this was the first League Cup game, I think it was. Um, it was Nottingham Forest away, I can remember Marlon Harewood was there and that was like a big, oh my gosh, he was like a man by then. Um, and it was, oh, you're going to come and you're going to travel with the first team. Okay, for me, it, it I wasn't expecting to be involved, so it was just, oh yeah, it's be nice, like my brother's going, it'd be nice to tag along with him and then it was, you're going on, I was like, Okay, <laughs> um, really wasn't expecting that, and really nervous then at that point because I was just so chilled. I thought there's no way I've played two reserve games. I've just come out of school. There's no way he's gonna put me on. It's like right, you're going on. And I was like, oh, okay. And then pro- as much as I was like, it was a shock. I don't think I had enough time to really process everything. Um, and yeah, just went on and, and ran about. Really, <laughs> um, couldn't tell you much. Um, from the game with Grasso, remember I think we lost the game two one, but I can't. Um, yeah, couldn't give you too much information about anything more than that. Just was really, really surprised to get the opportunity. Um, and then going forward, my nerves kicked in more. Cause now it's like, oh, you're traveling the first time. Like, right, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> make sure. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure I'm ready this time. I'm gonna make sure I prepare, it, prepare, and things like that. And I think a few weeks after we had like um, Bristol Rovers at Ashton Gate, and I came on in that game, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like. This is amazing. Um, again, it was never, you don't expect that. When I mean, you just become a, a scholar, it's just, it's not something I think you could, no matter how well I was I was doing, um, the players the players I could see who were in and around were my position, um, who are obviously much older. I was thinking it just doesn't happen. It had never happened before, you know? And so, like I said, once I made my debut, it was, um, it was amazing, amazing for the family, amazing um, probably for the academy as well. But I didn't, I didn't feel um, sort of additional pressure. I didn't feel like I had made it. I don't feel like it changed me. I didn't become like big time or anything like that. I still had to go to college and do all your new other stuff and um, yeah, but. The big thing for me, I was I noticed that a lot of the things that I got success with didn't work, and I feel like somewhere along the line, I feel like I should have been um, taught. Even though I was creative in myself, I don't think I was taught the real detail of going from essentially a target man to a small like now number 10 there wasn't a number 10 but then it was big man little man yeah. but the equivalent of like a number 10 and that's definitely helped me now only because when we have 
big physical athletes now. Um, you, I'm sure you probably would have seen the the um, the stats within academies and the first quarter yeah. is making up. I don't know something to do like seventy five percent of the boys in academies, but when you get to the Premier League or League football, actually, it's even across the board. Um, now, most people I speak to um, speak about actually giving the smaller, say, technicians or later birthdays and however that manifests itself. Um, more time because more of those will come through and even out and as much as I partly agree with that I think we I use the word neglect I think we neglect the big strong fast players I think we neglect them technically and I think we allow them to get success now using those things that won't give them success when they're older and they get this scenario like me where actually I couldn't use my physicality my creativity would help me succeed but I needed to know properly how to hold the ball up but I never taught how to hold the ball up because I was a big physical player until 14 I didn't need to I just pinned someone and it stopped you know then now I had to make double runs to have a yard because I didn't so I didn't get pushed off the ball and it's something I really think about now I didn't help in those um players now who have those physical attributes and they get loads and loads of success and score an attribute every game but trying to explain to them this is not going to be how it looks in three or four years time is quite difficult because they've always had success that way and you're almost trying to change their game now um, ahead of time but I think when you do get a buy-in I think that it might actually change that trend of those early matures or what you want to call them coming through I think if you support them and challenge them more to look for different ways to get success you might actually see more of those that percentage still going towards that way in the professional game it's just a hypothesis I thought I guess what's interesting is you mentioned playing up quite a lot you said you played up age groups but mm -hmm. if you're still physically mature or capable in yeah. the age groups above that still isn't challenging you yeah, you'll get a bit more of a challenge, mm -hmm. but it still might not be enough to make you change what you were doing. And you were saying you stopped stopped growing at fourteen. Mm -hmm. It's only a two year period between you being able to do pretty much whatever you want, whatever age group you're playing in, to mm -hmm. playing against full grown men at sixteen. Yeah, and being around the first team, which isn't a long time to be able to work on double movements, receiving on the half turn, details of pin and rolling. Yeah, against bigger players and what. And at that point. It was once you get into a first team environment, I think it then becomes what's going to get us a win on the weekend. It might, that young lad we've got who can't hold the ball up, every time he plays into his feet, it keeps losing it. It's, yes, we can, but how much time are we going to spend on on that when I, as a manager, I've got to keep my job. I need to win, I need to play the players who, again, at that point, who are going to follow my instructions to the to the team rather than do their own thing so you can, I can now think looking back like again reflecting you think he's not holding the ball up very well he's doing his own thing slightly with regards to not necessarily sticking to the team plan like he probably just couldn't trust me as a to um, execute his plan his tactics and so I completely like I, said, I completely get it I completely get it now but it's something that I think um, as coaches um, or from just for me I I'm aware of and I try to really help with and I see myself being off the back of the TCAS course I see myself being a striker 
stroke attacking coach more than an age group coach. Yeah. The problem I've got is that's not really a thing yet, but I'm as certain as I can be between three and five years, most clubs will have them. I think, well, I I'm, I love NFL. Mm-hmm. Now they go ridiculous lengths. There's a guy at LA Rams whose whole job is to pull the head coach back off the pitch, yeah. 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 which is a bit much. But yeah. the level of detail they're able to go in, they're broken down into like quarterback coaches, mm-hmm. quarterback mechanic coaches, uh, position, unit, attack, defense. Yeah. Like, I think there's something that football will go towards mm-hmm. just because it allows you to work more with those players and yeah. also it allows coaches to obviously have dialogue around stuff and probably upskill themselves within a coaching room, which yeah. I, I think is only going to benefit the players for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's something I'm working on at the minute. Um, it's my, what my ECAS, what they call a North Star, is to, to be an expert striker coach. Um, haven't specified what level that means it doesn't have to be first team I want to really help them and I think that's how I can do it best from my experiences and things like like that really going through that process of being a big strong target man to them being a, a small player and how do you excuse me <coughs> how can you change a game or can you change it that late like are there certain things that should be happening earlier on um, and I see it now in in academies weekly and boys, you know, keep giving it to him and just keep running behind. You think, okay, that's, I get it. He's getting him success today. But is that our role with, as an under-15 coach to make sure they get success today? Is performance the most important thing at this age? The scoreline? Or is it challenging that player who's scored three goals because he's run over the top each time? Not stopping him from doing it, but thinking, are, are there other ways that you can do it? Because as soon as you come up against somebody as quick and as fast, what are you gonna, what are you going to do? Um, have you got other tools in your box to still get success? The top teams now, like defenders, if if you look back 15, 20 years, you, you have more immobile defenders mm-hmm. who would go around kicking and heading people and yeah. stuff. Look at the top teams now, like Varane and Ramos, Varane, mm-hmm. both athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gomez and Van Dyke, Liverpool, yeah. both athletes. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be run really yeah. easily it's mm-hmm. not going to be a case of oh, I can just run in the eye and they'll go well no I can match you in that yeah. and I'm probably a little bit stronger mm-hmm. so you're probably at quite a good age to be able to affect those lads at that 15 age you're seeing the physical development yeah. you go and actually you predicted height this is what you're going to be you're mm-hmm. not going to be bigger and stronger than everyone forever Yeah, kind of we need to work on on, on these areas Yeah, no. um, I guess kind of the last thing before I let you go because I know you've got to go yeah, across okay. the work and stuff Actually, sorry, I've got two more bits. In terms of going into the England setup, mm-hmm. um, how was that going into that environment? Obviously, I imagine again a proud time for family in terms of being able to play for England and that type of stuff. How yeah. how was that for you going into that? How did that call up come about and all that type of stuff? Um, so we there was an under fourteen um, World Cups. So I think is that right? In ninety eight, I think it was. And we went across there. So I can't tell you how I got picked for that. I've got no idea. I got a letter through the post saying you've been selected for the five-a-side World Cup in, in France, which you won. It was like, that was amazing. So I'm um, trying to think he was in there. So Jermaine Pennant was in that same team. I don't know if you'd recognise any other names. Um, so we did that. So I think my name was sort of on the radar before the under-15 trials. And essentially it was it was a trial process. So it was a Southwest trial. Um, and then it became a South trial. Um, 
uh, and then uh, a national trial and they picked for the victory shield they picked a squad of 30 I think and then um, they rotated that squad um, throughout that season and then it became more of a one squad moving forward so I played the first two games I played against Wales um, in the first one and scored two goals so that was for my, again to my family it was amazing for me it was great um, but I think I was quite um little bit what the ducks back really like that I, that's an arrogance isn't it but it was I, I didn't really feel that nervous sort of playing playing for England not as much as I did like playing for the first team or anything like that which is only a year later or so um <clears throat> excuse me but um it was it became interesting through through the process of of those years um so and again that was when like I said things became a bit more challenging for me it was seeing other players I, if I'm honest I think a lot what helped was the fact that I was in and around the first team especially like 16s and so on it was like if you're playing for the first team surely you're gonna have an opportunity then other players so I don't remember like um Stefan Moore who was at Aston Villa back then he was coming through um and then we started to see what I like under 17 so I see younger players coming through so I think like um, Glenn Johnson was a year below me and then what was sort of my final nail in my coffin was Darren Bentz like a flyer he was a year below me and so I came out he came in and I never got back in again essentially uh, so I think I've played I don't think I played not sure if I played 18s or not I think I played 15s, 16s, 17s but amazing amazing times I look back on it so so proudly but I was, it was very nonchalant about it like I've got next to no programs I didn't keep um think any shirts signed I've got shirts but I didn't get any of them signed like it was just oh great I'm gonna go yeah <laughs> and now looking back I'm like god imagine all the players you'd have played against and all the you know like, names that you recognize like one I've got the video of it played against um Tevez at Wembley and I didn't until I don't know a long time after that I really didn't know who Tevez was I think I just watched it back years after Tevez was Tevez Hold on, did I just say Tevez? You know, it's a so there would be way there'd be many more of those scenarios from programs where people have played against and stuff who just had no idea because I just looking online. Obviously, I know during one of the tournaments you're at, mm-hmm. Portugal had like Charisma in yeah. their squad in the time at the time. Which yeah, it's crazy, really, when you look at it. Like yeah, just people that you know played in Milan, won Champions Leagues, all that yeah. type of stuff. It's, um, it, it is, it is um, a bit crazy looking back but like I said at the time it was it was great I played 22 games scored 11 goals I was just you know for me it was a, an amazing time but something that I didn't really I don't want to say I didn't appreciate because I did appreciate it. I was grateful for it but it was just it didn't seem like a huge achievement at the time I guess the one positive and I've, I've said this in previous episodes of podcasts is having that kind of nonchalant attitude probably does allow you to be a bit more creative because if you're so uptight all the time mm. and worried about ramifications of going oh if I if I mess this pass up I'm going to be getting dropped or that type of stuff yeah. doesn't allow almost that freedom and if you're quite a creative individual mm-hmm. you probably need that freedom of going just game of football will be alright yeah yeah and I feel like I um, I feel like I had the opposite for the first team after a while I became terrified of playing for the first team it was almost like right you're going on just like oh my god this is like you know and, and it, yeah. it was um 
and it was that focusing on everything thinking right make sure you don't lose this first pass that comes up to you hold get hold of it and you overthink it and what they say paralysis for analysis essentially and I was doing that internally and I thought that that really affected me um, I look back now I think oh, I'm potentially with like a psych team and stuff like that just to get through that or at least be able to process what was going on but then would have made a huge a huge difference but I look back on to where I am now on this was like supposed to happen it might be my way of dealing with it but this was supposed to be my journey I was supposed to get those experiences early on to pass them on to to people now um, and I'm sort of happy with that I don't look back on my time being released at 21 and going through and all I don't see that as a negative at all and having having coaches like obviously there's a lot of great coaches up and down the country working with kids having coaches have better understanding of that type of situation or that mindset is only going to help hopefully us produce better rounded people and then obviously hopefully better players as well yeah no definitely playing's not a good enough reason to be a good coach and I'm not one of you have to have played to be good I think having a mix though like anything the more um, broad or varied um, the team different experiences I think the the better you'll be so I think having somebody with player background great having an academic who's got all the theory in the world and you sort of merge brilliant as well you know having someone who's played at some professional level or come through different comfort potentially never sport all those things I think you can all bring something to the table and that's what will give you a really rounded program good and this is the last question before mm-hmm. I shoot off um, and I've asked everyone this except for Tom which I need to go back and say <laughs> but um, who's the best player you've ever played with or against or coach you've worked either under or with or against and why okay um Best player I've played with, I'd probably say two. Um, no, I'll pick one. The best player, so Bristol, I was through Bristol City, was Tommy Doherty. Um, because I couldn't work out how he was so good and he had no pace, like none. And being the type of player I was and that being a lot of how I got success I just like how does he not lose the ball how does he not get how does nobody run him how does he he was a pure technician his lads in the academy now but off of both feet he could tackle he, as a centre for like he could just do everybody had and I just could not work out how we do sprints and he'd be so far behind and then we get on the pitch and you'd just be like and again it's that what I was speaking about about potentially hiding your your weaknesses um, so I would say him um, mixed probably with a, with Brian Tinian um, who just coming up I just don't know how he didn't give the ball away in a in a possession um, practice like we do possession practice and I still don't think I've ever seen him give the ball away and I'm just I just can't <laughs> it just used to it used to generally when I first got on the first team I just used to be like he hasn't you don't get the ball away like ever <laughs> I just couldn't get my head around it and because it was a very different skill set to me I think it was much more um, impressive um, and coach wise strip manager I would I'll cheat and do two um, Chris Ramsey who's now QPR um, technical director or something high up there um he was probably more of an inspiration than necessarily the best. I don't really remember so much around um, 
any technical detail or tactical detail he gave me. But having a black manager then, this was an England setup, I can remember just like whenever he spoke, I would just like hang off every single word and it was almost like um and now as a as a coach he's someone who I look back on and be like he made had a real big impact on on me even like wanting to to coach if that makes sense you almost knew um, you could yeah and and that was and I look at him and I want to go and I'm planning to go up at some point and have a um go and speak to him or do an interview or something with him around around some stuff but he was a real inspiration to me and I would say effect on me wise uh, Bobby Gould just the confidence that he gave me to go and play was um I was 19 um, I think it was League 1 then League 2 um, and I just felt a million dollars every time I went on the pitch just through his support support yeah he just instilled so much confidence in me and again that without that experience I don't know if I would feel like I could potentially do that to others. I would think their confidence may would have to come from their own performance or whatever. Mine didn't. I wasn't playing at Bristol City. Stepped in the door. He said, I've seen what you do. Love it. I just want to see the Marvel Knights team playing in the reserves in my first team. You're going to play the next five games. And, of course, there's more to it than that in training. It was, you know, give the ball away. Keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. We need that in the team. That's why I've got you there. And just felt felt so positive and from it no what do you call now psychological safety I, I had no worries about going to him speaking to him I knew it would never be a negative I think that that environment I would love how I felt in his environment is how I aspire to make my players feel with me as a coach yes yeah, so Marv I really appreciate your time I know you're busy yeah, thanks, thanks for, for, for inviting me it's brilliant cheers no worries Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.